and go to the Gospel of Luke, chapter number 22. The Gospel of Luke, chapter number 22. I want to read verses 61 through 65. The title of the message this evening is, While Peter Wept. Luke chapter 22, verses 61 through 65. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. Peter went out and wept bitterly. The men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote you? Many other things blasphemously they spake against him. While Peter wept, another brief word of prayer. Lord, we're grateful that we can take a few moments to break the bread of life. We only ask you to give us receptive hearts and give us ears to hear as we minister tonight in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. About 300 years ago, over across the ocean in Germany, a number of scholars began to study the New Testament, and they studied it with the goal of trying to see how many of the words attributed to Jesus actually can be safely or correctly attributed to him. These scholars denied the virgin birth. They didn't believe in any of the miracles of Scripture. They certainly didn't believe in the resurrection or the ascension of Christ. But by the time they had completed most of their critical studies and research, they came to the conclusion that there's probably less than 18% of the words in red that we have that actually are words that belong to Christ. It's amazing how through the years, during the time of the Enlightenment, so many skeptics continued to try to work on the Bible, and they did everything they could to undermine its authority to remove people's faith. But you know as well as I do that if you let an unbeliever begin to work on the Scripture, quite naturally, if they begin with unbelief, they'll end in unbelief. For more than 2,000 years, people have trusted Scripture to provide us with the answers regarding life, tell us about Christ. The first century after Jesus, they believed Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived without sin. He died on the cross in our place, was buried, raised from the dead. Five centuries later, the church still believed that. A thousand years later, the church still believed that the Word of God contained the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But during that enlightenment period, there were a number of people who thought they were smarter than God. One of our own founding fathers of this nation, a man who was brilliant, did a lot to promote the common good in this nation, but Thomas Jefferson still had ideas about Jesus that were inaccurate. And he even created his own Bible called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, extracted textually from the Greek the Latin, the English, and the French Bible. If there's one thing I do know about Scripture, as Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. There are a lot of different versions of Jesus. Everybody wants their own image, and for the most part, people want an image that is congenial to how they live. They don't want an image of someone who's holy in their home that may point out what's wrong, encourage them when there's something right. 
Most people are looking for a Christ that doesn't do anything to convict the conscience. They want a Christ that will justify the way that they live. But what kind of Jesus do you want? The image we hear on television very often from the reporters is that Jesus was, he was very loving, he was merciful. But Jesus, he was non-judgmental. He would never, ever say anything to anybody to hurt, hurt anyone's feelings. And he was the kind of person that walked in line with all of the truths of the Old Testament. He did. But the religious people of the New Testament honestly believed Jesus and his disciples were in many ways irreverent. They said to Jesus, how come your disciples don't fast like we do? Jesus said, one day when I'm gone, they will fast. But while I'm with them, They have no need to fast. They said, how come your disciples on the Sabbath day, when you're not supposed to walk too far or do any labor at all, they're out in the cornfields and they're plucking ears of corns and they're eating. The Lord said, you need to know I'm bigger than the Sabbath day. God is bigger than the Sabbath day. Jesus even spoke of Herod, the king, and he said, that man is a fox. That is to say, he's cunning, he's sly, he's deceitful. One time Jesus was talking to the religious leaders of of the uh, area and he said to them, he said, you say that I'm not the son of God. But he said, you're of your father, the devil and the lusts of your father, you will do. That's an image of Jesus that a lot of people don't particularly hear about. But when we think about Christ in the Gospels, we have to understand that the picture that we have is of someone that can do anything and everything. As a lady came to Jesus one time and she had been in a lot of sin. The Bible says she came to Jesus and she bowed down and had anointed him and bathed his feet with her tears. Peter and some of the other folks were looking at him. The other people were saying, oh my goodness, if this man was really a prophet of God, there's no way he'd let this woman come and touch him and defile him. And, and, and Jesus said to, to, to Simon, I should say, he said to Simon, he said, let me ask you a question. He, he said, when, when I came in here, did you give me any water to wash my feet? The man said, no, sir. He said, this woman has washed my feet continually with her, her, uh, her tears. He said, did you bother to kiss me when I entered your house as a form of greeting? He said, no, sir. He said, this woman has kissed my feet continually. You didn't even give me any kind of balm or fragrance. But yet this woman has anointed, anointed me. When I think about Christ and what he means to me and what he means to you and the things that he has done, we, we have to wonder sometimes what kind of an image are we promoting in society? What kind of an image do you want in your home? What kind of Christ as a master or savior or Lord do you want over your own life? Scripture says that Jesus was being terribly mistreated by these leaders And somewhere in the middle of all of that, according to verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at him. I guess the question is, which Jesus looked at him? Because if we follow the scholars, they say that Jesus didn't do any miracles and all the stuff attributed to him in the scripture that's supernatural, that's wrong. But I'm telling you, the Jesus that looked at Peter was the one that was able to take babies up in his arms and bless them. Was the one that walked on water. He was the one that took the loaves of bread and the fishes and multiplied them. And what does the Bible tell us about this? It says that that, that Jesus, when he looked at Peter, Peter then remembered the word of the Lord. Now I'm sure that, that this had to have been a powerful moment. 
that Peter, with all of the things that was going on at that fire, and he was there listening to all of these people, and, and they're accusing him, saying, you're one of his disciples. And Peter said, no, not me. I'm not a part of that group of people at all. And suddenly when Jesus turned and Jesus looked at him, Mr. Peter encountered the countenance of somebody who had already changed his life. But now here's another pivotal moment. He remembered the word of the Lord. I think some of us have those kind of encounters with God that when we look back, we can remember what God said to us and we can remember where we were standing when the word of the Lord came back to us. You still remember where you were when you truly gave your heart over to the Lord and you decided no more of sin, but all of Christ. Can you still remember that place where you were at where, where it, it, was, it, was, it was you and it was God and it was the world and you had to make a choice? I mean, you needed a miracle. You needed provision. You needed supply. You needed God to help pay some bills. But there was at some point God spoke directly to your heart to let you know I'll work this all out. Until you really get a glimpse of Christ, not the scholars, Jesus. Not the, not the non-supernatural Christ that's been drawn up by people who don't believe in him. But when you truly get a glimpse of the one in scripture, the one that walked on water, the one that was able to cast out devils and heal the sick, the one that was able to raise the dead. When you come face to face with him, you'll remember the word of the Lord. How was Peter able to remember some of the things that Jesus said to him? Jesus said a lot through the years, we know that, because the scripture tells us in red, if you've got that kind of a Bible, it shows you that Jesus, he was fairly long-winded with some of these speeches of his. Sermon on the Mount is kind of long. You sit there and start reading it, and let's not forget that Jesus one time, he had the folks out there along a hillside, and he preached to them and taught them for 72 hours. I'd like to know how many of you would listen to me for three days if I just kept going on and on and on. But out of everything that Peter had heard Jesus teach, this one word came back to him. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me. When Peter heard that cock crow, his heart was pricked. See? The same way there can be moments in your life that create a memory of the word of the Lord coming to you. There are also things that can happen in your walk with God that instantly your heart is pricked and you realize, oh, my word. I've sinned against God. What can I do? That's what happened here. Peter in verse 62, it says he went out and wept bitterly. He didn't want to be around anybody. That's what happens when conviction comes upon you. You don't feel clean. You don't feel good. You feel guilty. And when you feel guilty and wretched and condemned, you want to go and just crawl up in a corner in a fetal position and hide from everybody. But that's never the answer. There's nothing wrong with weeping. Tears are good. Tears are a sign that you have a heart. You've got feeling that God can touch you, that he can work in your life. And the, the psalmist said in the Old Testament about how he cried so much that it was like tears became his meal. The exact words were, my tears have become my meat. There's nothing wrong with weeping. A lot of people have cried. 
Jesus came into Jerusalem. On that pathway, he was overlooking the city. The Bible says he looked at all of the city and began to weep and said, these folks don't even know the time of their visitation. He wept over the sins of the city, but now here Peter is weeping over his own sins. Have you ever wept over yours? Billy Sunday, about 90 years ago, was a great preacher in this nation. Held a lot of good revivals, as I understand it, in Illinois, more than 80 saloons shut down under one meeting. That man preached several weeks. Several weeks. He preached the word in such a way that brought conviction. That conviction caused people to reach out and grip the front of the pews and the chairs. People would come to the front of the, the old tent and in that sawdust, they throw themselves down and just begin to cry out to God, begging God for mercy. And unlike many evangelists, they went back and checked Years later and found out that more than 85% of his converts were still walking with God afterwards. Man of God preached. But he brought conviction to people. So did you ever acknowledge your own sin? And did that ever bring you to a point when you wept and you cried before? Some people say, oh no, Pastor Darrell, you've got to understand, I've been good all of my life. I'm a nice person. I've never sinned. I haven't done anything wrong. First John says, if anybody says they haven't sinned, he said they make, they say that man is a liar. All of us, when we've come face to face with our human frailty, with our flaws and our weaknesses, when you find yourself in self-righteousness, believing you're so good, then suddenly you run right smack into one of your own weaknesses, addictions, problems then suddenly you realize that the word of the Lord is true for you just like it is for other people. Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, preached one message. 3,000 people got saved because it says their hearts were pricked and they cried out, what must we do? So what's the answer? When a person is in sin and they don't know God, repent, become a Christian. What's the answer for a person who is a Christian but ends up in sin? Repent, take a bath in the blood. And get up and go on. Leave the shame. Leave the guilt behind. Take a bath in the blood. Enjoy the innocence of the Lord. And after you've been forgiven by God, receive the forgiveness and accept it. Believe that you're as innocent now as a newborn baby. While Peter wept, Jesus was shamefully treated. You can see there in verse 63, 64, he was mocked, blindfolded, and beaten. Jesus told them in Matthew 20, verse 19, he said, one day I'm going to be delivered over and the Gentiles are going to take advantage of me. I'll be killed, but I'm going to rise again on the third day. He said that. Now, what does it mean to mock someone? That means to treat them lightly, to make fun of them to the point of embarrassment. You ever tease somebody, ever laughed at somebody, made fun of somebody in school until they cried? I was a bad little kid. I did that. Terrible. Not a nice thing at all. But when you mock people and you, you, you tease them, those words that you speak can be ever so hurtful. Yeah. Elisha was a disciple of the prophet Elijah. One day they were walking together. Elijah said to Elisha, what do you want from me? 
Elisha said, I've been walking with you a long time now. I've seen these miracles. And I remember when you, you know, you called me to be your disciple back there in that, in that, when I was on that farm and I left everything and, and, and started following you. And he said, I just want a double portion of what I felt back yonder in that cotton patch. Elijah said, if you walk close to me when I leave, you'll receive that. I mean, Elisha made sure he was everywhere Elijah was. Didn't want to leave him. But one day they were walking, chariot of fire came and got Elijah, took him right out of, out of Elisha's sight. Elisha saw that mantle down there, picked that up, went back to the river. A miracle took place as he smote that river the same way Elijah did. Well, now the man of God is anointed. The sons of the prophets know he's anointed. But it says in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha was walking one day and there were a bunch of children, 40 or so of them. And they saw Elisha coming and he didn't have any hair. And so they started laughing at him. They started mocking him. They said, old man, get caught away like Elijah did. And they laughed and they laughed. The Bible says a bear came out of the woods and tore into 42 of them. You're not supposed to mock people, teasing people to the point of abuse, verbal abuse. It's not good, but that's what they did to Jesus. They mocked him. They mocked him. It says they blindfolded him. It says if you're God in the flesh, and you're omniscient, and you know everything, you're going to be able to tell us who it is that's hitting you. That's what they, they did. When you... Put a blindfold on somebody. You're requiring that person to use another sense, another faculty of sense. Since they have sight no longer, now they've got to depend on hearing. And the terror involved in that is you can't anticipate specific actions because you're unable to see. So you're listening. Think about that. So that'll produce some kind of fear in people who are not well acquainted with God. But here Jesus was blindfolded, and these people were doing what they could to embarrass him. Now you have heard of waterboarding, I'm sure. When I was in the military, certainly was used then. Everybody knew about it. But to me, what is the most terrifying aspect of the waterboarding isn't just the application of the water. You lay somebody backwards on a board or a bench and then you hoist them up so that their feet are in the air and you put a big towel or something over their eyes and over their nose and part of their mouth and then they take a, a pitcher of water or something or a bucket and they start pouring it. What, what makes waterboarding so terrifying is that you can't tell when it's going to begin or when it's going to end. You have no ability to know when it'll start or stop. I'm not condoning it. I'm not approving it. I'm not endorsing it. I'm only telling you what it is. The, the fact that you can't see what they're doing and you're laying there strapped down. That's what's terrifying. Because I don't know what they're going to do next. You see? The blindfold. So it says, while he was blindfolded, they began to strike him. To humiliate him. That's the whole point of hitting someone. Whether you're going to punch him publicly or with an open hand. They began to slap him and strike him. They wanted the folks all around to see that. And I'm telling you, that does humiliate a person. And that can surely break a person's spirit to be humiliated. Growing up as I did in Cleveland, Ohio. I saw grown men sometimes in the streets surrounded by teenagers 
The teenagers were harassing the adult. I've seen teenagers slap a grown man in front of all kinds of people. The grown man couldn't do anything. See, couldn't do anything. I've seen women get in street fights where just terrible things were taking place. And the fight ends in utter humiliation. Sometimes people would even try to humiliate adults in front of their children. Terrible. Terrible. But yet, Jesus went through all of this, restrained his behavior. He could have called down legions of angels, but rather than do that, he endured all of that for you and for me. He went through all of that trouble because of your sin and my sin. And we very often won't restrain ourselves and hold back what's going on in our life when we want to, you know, have a display of the flesh. We want to just let loose and give somebody our two cents. And I want to give them a piece of my mind. And then I want to let loose and let anger just be exhibited. Jesus never said a word. He didn't do anything. And all this was going on while Peter wept. While Peter was crying, it says they spake blasphemously against him. The Jewish people had all kinds of rumors about Jesus. Some of the later Jewish texts tell us that they believed that Jesus' mother had relations with a Roman soldier. The scuttlebutt amongst the Jews, even to this day, is that Jesus is the product of a Roman soldier who had a relationship with Mary. It's untrue. Luke tells us, Matthew tells us about the birth of our Savior. But what is blasphemous language? Blasphemous language is when somebody utters impious words at a sacrifice or their words of slander or words of defamation. Think about that. Try to destroy somebody's character. Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the individual that was offering himself to die as the Lamb of God on the cross. But yet, despite all of that taking place, Jesus never said one word. He never did anything. He simply endured it all for you and for me. That's what I'm getting at. But also to speak blasphemously is to use foul and vulgar language. Can you imagine how these people mocked Jesus and the kinds of names they probably called him? I'm a preacher. And I'm telling you, I've I've had people call me names that are not nice. Just because they know I'm a Christian and a preacher, it's probably happened to you. If you've ever been on the end of, of somebody cussing you out, you know that's not a good feeling. Terrible feeling. And I've seen men cuss women to the point where it brings a woman to tears. I've seen some women cuss a man until that man doesn't even feel like he has any worth at all. Language is powerful. Foul, vulgar language, cussing somebody out. That's not good at all. It doesn't matter what the culture says. We should avoid it. So, So here I am in... Small town America, a black guy that's a pastor, to be politically correct, an African-American guy who's a pastor. But yet in the culture that we live in now, you can't use certain words. So if you want to say Negro, you can, but you certainly cannot use it in a colloquial form and use the N word. That's out now. 
Impossible. You can hear it in rap songs every day. People call each other by those different names. Improper. The culture has banned it. The culture said it's wrong. And when that word is used, actors and actresses, sometimes singers, have to go to rehabilitation. Got to go take a class. Growing up as I did in Cleveland, Ohio, we weren't saved. In the same sex community, the, the homosexual community, you, you can't use uh, the, the F word, F-A-G-G-O-T, to describe homosexuals today, even though my brothers and people in the neighborhood use it all the time to describe somebody they thought was simple or weak or something. You can't use that word today. It's inappropriate. It's not, it's not right. And if you use it, just like I've seen with these actors and actresses, you got to take a class. Got to take a class now on how to get along with people. I'm not condoning the use of it. I'm just telling you what's going on in the culture. But to show you how twisted this thing is. You can't use that N word and you can't use that F word. However, you can turn the television on on just about any kind of CBS or ABC in the middle of the night. And you will find one lady after another screaming at a lady saying, you're a female dog. You'll find men saying that to women, calling them female dogs. So twisted is this mind that in our culture we say you can't use words that make somebody feel bad, but however we think the word female dog will make somebody feel good if we promote it on television. I'm telling you this whole thing is demonic. It's wicked. None of this stuff ought to be coming out of our mouth. If you're a Christian... Why would you want to cuss somebody out? That's what they did to Jesus. Jesus was blasphemed by these people. He was mocked and blindfolded. They were slapping him. Has anybody ever slapped you with an open hand? You, I'm sure if this ever happened, you wanted to come alive quickly. You wanted to defend yourself because you instantly feel humiliated. How dare you put your hands on me like that? Or if somebody hits you. Jesus was able to control all of his emotions. He kept himself in check because he knew that what he was passing through was not as great as what he was going to come through in the resurrection. The redemption was going to be big enough to take care of us. So let's think about that. This is what they did to Jesus. But Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's now in heaven. But what have you done to him since you've been a Christian? Have you grieved the Holy Spirit? Have you maybe broken the heart of God, if we can say it that way? Has anything ever happened in your life that would be displeasing to God, that would cause you to go and weep over what you've done? The nice thing about all of this is that even though you read chapter 22, then you read chapter 23, you got to keep going with the rest of the story because there is a chapter 24. He comes up out of that grave, healed, powerful, telling the disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The one thing we should do, we should ask God, God, how can I be a better and stronger Christian? Father, help me to restrain myself so that my speech is godly. Remember the people that were cussing out Jesus? These were all religious people, scribes, priests, 
captains of the temple. They knew the word inside and out. They understood the law of God, but yet in the presence of God, they would cuss and they would scream at him and blaspheme him. Don't be that kind of a Christian. Don't just be religious. Ask God to help you govern and guide your tongue. That's so important for your witness. Because when you realize you're dealing with somebody whose body is the temple of God or with somebody whose body could be the temple of God if they only got saved, then you realize my speech should be used for edification, seasoned with the grace of God. I realize that nobody's perfect. And, uh, you know, there are people that really do love God, but they fight that battle with their mouth. It's It's a work. Nothing's impossible for God. I I think when there's a lady present, I don't think men ought to curse. I don't care if they are unbelievers. I think they ought to treat a woman like a woman. That's what I believe. And the handful of occasions where I have been in some places where some men were just really just totally disrespectful, sometimes having women at the table, it hadn't bothered me to walk over to somebody and say, "Could could you please maybe... Restrain the language. You got ladies here. Now they may not respect their own women or wives, but got some people around here. We we really do believe our women are ladies. Treat them the right way. Some people don't care, but that doesn't change the truth of the matter. So folks, think about that this week. Think about that the next time you're somewhere and somebody's got that TV on, you hear that word. Come across. Remember what I said about this culture. They'll tell you that's wrong, but then they'll tell you that's okay. But ladies, you don't let anybody call you that. Because that's not what you are. You're a daughter of Abraham, and God loves you. Let's stand. Isn't God a wonderful Savior? Oh, my. Praise God. We thank the Lord. He's a wonderful Savior.